Welcome to A Day in the Why, a podcast where I talk with fascinating folks about the jobs they've held, the things they've learned, and how well those line up with their values and goals. You may just learn something, but I hope you'll at least laugh along with us as we dive into the mistakes we've made, the lessons we've learned, and the secrets behind how we got where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Welcome to the 10th episode, a special episode indeed, of A Day in the Why. Today I'm going to be flipping the script, and instead of asking all the questions, I've asked a buddy of mine to come back on the show and ask me the questions I usually submit everyone else to. Should make for an interesting episode. Welcome to the takeover, Rich. (laughs) Thank you, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm really excited that we could be here today. Uh, Seems a little nostalgic uh, in the not-too-recent past. You and I got together to discuss things from opposite perspectives. So I really appreciate your making time today to share your own insights uh, with me and our listeners about what you're up to right now, how you got to be there, and where you are headed. So at the end, for a surprise bonus, we will revisit a 2013 interview where I got to interview you. Yeah, and the first I saw of this script uh, was about 30 minutes ago. I was giggling at some of the insights that Shane got out of my interview from back then, at the same time kind of cringing inwardly, as I suspect many of us do, at at looking at at our past selves and and remembering certain aspects. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, remembering the past. I found myself being a little bit more forgiving to my my past self these days, trying to avoid the negative self-talk and sort of imagining patting myself on the back as a small child and being like, oh, you're so sweet. Bless your heart. <laughs> you didn't really know very much of anything back then, <laughs> did you? <laughs> well, we all do the best with what we can. That's true. Well, hey, it's great to be back. Uh, thanks for having me again, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. So am I. I, uh, I thought of the idea while I was driving up uh, through the mountains uh, several months ago, and I thought, because I was trying to figure out what would a, a good 10th episode be. You know, who's that, that, that really interesting guest, really interesting show I can have on? And then I thought, wait, what if I flip the script, right? Subject myself to the microscope that I've been putting everyone else under. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is super easy for me because uh, not only do I get to ask the pointed questions, but uh, you get to do all the editing after the fact, too. So, uh, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, to kick things off, can you give us an overview of what exactly it is that you are doing these days? Sure. A couple months ago, I was fortunate enough to join a company uh, called the Predictive Index, which is, turns out, 65, 70 years old uh, as far as a company. And uh, what they uh, got their start doing was, was these uh, pen and paper behavioral analyses that they would conduct with job candidates to figure out who the right people were for a given job. And uh, you've, you've probably been exposed to any number of the, the behavior analysis out there. I'm a, a PLNJ, et cetera, right? Well, there's lots of them out there. And uh, they're, they're, you know, they have varying degrees of validity for, for different use cases, whether that's just kind of a, almost a, an astrological sign, kind of this is what you might be like through something that like, like the predictive index, which is rigorous enough to make hiring decisions upon. Uh, and, and in this litigious world we live in, that means that you actually have a lot of data behind why it is suitable for making hiring decisions, uh, such that if someone says, you discriminated against me because of this, and it's because uh, uh, I'm Filipino or because I'm a woman, etc., you can actually defensively contradict that in court. And so it's safe for a company to use as a a hiring metric. And what is it that you do there? I am a senior product designer for the Predictive Index. And uh, we are positioned to create a new niche in the market called talent optimization. And it's really, really uh, timely given we're in this great resignation or or great reflection period of time following the quarantine where everyone has, has... you know, jumped ship or a lot of people have jumped ship from their current roles or are considering doing so whether or not they have somewhere to land. So it's a big questioning of of one's values and goals, which is timely. And then ultimately deciding that, hey, where I am right now is not where I need to be. And as a result, there's a lot of talent flux going on in the market. And companies that are that are being really uh, flexible or thinking of themselves as remote first or remote default, et cetera, mm-hmm. are seeing access to a much greater, much wider, much deeper talent pool. And that's great once they get that talent, that's, that's super, but they still have to retain that talent. And that t- speaks to culture and it speaks to uh, processes that, that the companies have built up internally to, to attract and retain talent. And what this company is all about is identifying how we're wired for work and then once, once you've acquired this, this excellent employee with a great job fit, how do you keep them engaged? 
How do you grow them? How do you um, make your company the best place for them and make them optimally contribute to your to your company? And did you say that you work on the product side? Yep. So I'm working on the product side in, in terms of a platform view. So I'm looking oh. at all the plat- all the products that they offer. Okay. They offer several products. Mm-hmm. Uh, so versus being a product specific product designer, I'm looking at how all these products fit together and how we can make them work together in a very synergistic fashion, uh, as well as how we can begin to to personalize and customize each of these products so that it's even more valuable, even a better fit to uh, an individual or to an individual organization. Like a meta project integrator. Sure, yeah, yeah. But it just means I have to think at at, at a slightly higher level than just product, right? I have to think about the product and know the product, but I have to think about how the product might work with its brother, with its sister, and and how they might extend to different uh, circumstances, to small companies, large companies, at a more systems level. Ah, systems, yeah. Uh, so what do you particularly love about this phase of your career? I love that I'm finally getting to work with a lot of other designers, for one thing. Uh, I've typically been in, in more of a user experience team of one uh, modality, where I'm really the only person doing what I'm doing, but I'm working with a variety of other people, developers, product owners, uh, you know, scientists, etc. But I'm still the only designer. And so it's nice to be able to actually sit back and kind of listen and learn from people that are doing the same type of craft that I am and see how they approach things and learn from their approach, uh, from their unique viewpoints. That's just awesome. (laughs) So um, what do you see as uh, sort of your next career goal? Like what's your next step looking forward six months to a year or more? Where do you see yourself headed? Uh, I'd like to, to return to an arc of design leadership. And I have I have that inner voice that has always chided me, saying, "Well, you're not a you're not a good this or that." Uh, substantial uh, imposter syndrome always going on, right? Mm. Uh, but ultimately, if I if I'm honest with myself, I know that I, I am a good leader and I am a good designer and I've been a good design leader in the past. Mm. However, there's so much new craft and new tech and new thinking in the marketplace uh, that I feel like there's a ton of room to grow, and I want to grow into that into that space again. So design leadership is, is ultimately the aspiration. Hmm. Now that we have an idea of what it is that you're doing now, um, I'd love for us to be able to take a step back and figure out what led you to be here. I'm gonna reorganize the questions that you asked me from a while back, uh, and I'm gonna loosely uh, group them into uh, people, roles or positions, and sort of external forces. All right, uh, so first of all, you mentioned a moment ago that you're having the opportunity to uh, once again work with a bunch of other uh, the folks, uh, designers, uh, although you're the only designer now, I think you said. No, no, no. Uh, in past roles, I was the only designer. Oh. In oh. this role, I actually have, a, let's say, a family of designers. Ah. Uh, we all have slightly different taskings, okay. perhaps, but we're all collaborating you know, daily. Okay. Uh, so uh, with, with that viewpoint of uh, collaboration, um, can you look back over your career and sort of describe a couple of particularly important persons, uh, maybe family or friends or managers or, you know, employees, peers, uh, people that you have known that have been particularly important to your career trajectory. I suppose one early person in my career would have been actually a recent guest. We haven't uh, issued the show yet, but a local illustrator named Danny Wilson. He's been uh, in the area doing uh, fabulous design work for 32 years. And I was fortunate enough to be exposed to him in early high school, became aware of him. And then I was fortunate enough to work for him in early college. I came back home and and apprenticed to him, so an apprenticed illustrator. Hmm. Um, And I learned a lot about the craft and moreover the focus and process and regularity that needs to, to happen in order to present a, uh, a professional uh, face to the world and to encourage investment in, in me, right? For example, um, companies take a risk when they hire an illustrator. Um, they're a crucial part of that production chain. And if they don't deliver and don't deliver on time and deliver with a high level of quality, then that can screw things up. And so I learned from him that, okay, art is not just this loosey-goosey thing that you uh, you know you feel like being productive and and then you you do an illustration and the client you know better be privileged enough to understand that they're getting this this awesome artifact etc. No, it's a business just like anything else, and so I, I think I learned early on that, that anything that I chose to do in the in the creative sphere was also just a business and it, you know it, it wasn't a special child it wasn't anything unique uh, it wasn't the uh, the Van Gogh 
you know, cutting his ear off and, and painting masterpieces. It was, it was work just like anything else. So I think that was what I learned from Danny. So another individual that was really influential, I think, in my career was uh, a fellow named Mark Larson. And he brought me on when I first came back to Knoxville after having left the Virginia area. And he gave me a first job here in this area as a, as a web designer. And I've been a web designer before, so it wasn't that that was influential, but it was the fact that he allowed me to connect into a, a Knoxville network that I had not previously been privy to. Knoxville is kind of interesting in that one of the big networks is UT. And so if you didn't go to UT, you don't have access to the UT network. People that went to UT, people that are employed by people that go to UT, et cetera. And so by joining Mark at a company called Digital Media One, I was connected with several really talented individuals who their own network effects have continued to, to burgeon for me. Uh, not to mention just learning from those professionals was pivotal in, in becoming who I am now versus, say, who I was 15 years ago. Uh, another would be old friend of mine, Christian Manzella, who uh, lives out in Washington State right now. He actually joined a company that I was with back in 2000, and he came on as a, I like to call him a, a young punk wannabe designer. I taught him some some basic design stuff and some some I guess office chops you know professional office chops, and uh, he took that and ran with it. And unlike myself, who jumped out of the design sphere into development and into let's just say management, he followed design from the the ground up and stayed in that vertical until now he is you know senior uh, executive design level. And so I have learned a lot from him just in terms of how to navigate the waters of, of design careers, not to mention understanding the value of a diverse work history like I've got compared to a uh, career path. Yeah. So there are, uh, you said, you mentioned some interesting things there, and I'd love to dive into those a little bit more. I've been involved in, in creating art or music or other, you know, projects for, for fun in the past, you know, just the, the act of creation was, you know, uh, intriguing or fulfilling or cathartic in some way. But in, in considering that creation or in considering how art communicates to others, uh, I'd be interested in your perspective because um, my understanding is you have some formal education in art. And so I would love to hear your perspective on the sort of trade-offs between artistic integrity and business needs. Uh, I believe you referenced, uh, uh, first of all, was it was it David, the first gentleman that you knew? Danny. Danny, thank you. Uh, and how he um, sort of taught you some of the differences between uh, art versus business. Can you dive into that a little bit? I'm going to start with, with the education piece. I went to the Columbus College of Art and Design in Ohio back in the, the early 90s, and I graduated with a degree in visual communication. Oh, now, when I started, it was a degree in illustration, ah. and myself, uh, as well as I think all of the illustration majors, were a little bit upset when the school changed that to visual communication mm -hmm. the year before we graduated. Mm -hmm. But looking back, I'm actually really thankful, because mm -hmm. it reframed the conversation around what the degree really meant, and it was an accurate reframing, because we weren't just learning to draw. We were learning how to tell stories with our creative output. Right. And that mind shift actually became more and more relevant as, as we moved into to, you know, relatively recent years. And I approach every job with understanding what the story is that we're trying to tell. Uh, what is the story of, of the, the job that I'm doing? What is the story of the product that we're producing or the service we're producing? And what is the story that we want to be telling? Because there's often a delta between you know, the, the, the words that we put on the page thus far Maybe it was a faltered launch, or maybe it was a really limited product that was successful, but, but very one-dimensional. So the story that's been told, what is that? And what is the story that we want to be telling? And how do we, how do we bridge that gap? That way of thinking really frames almost anything you can imagine. It's applicable at any level, whether that's physics or, or uh, finger painting. So to dive into that just a little bit more to, I don't know, maybe philosophically, what is the intrinsic value to you of communication or storytelling? Um, how does it benefit your life? How does it benefit the lives of others? Not only in a professional, like a you know monetary capacity, but what does it what does it mean to you? What's the value of communication or storytelling? We're all islands. We're all individuals. You know, we we were born alone. We die alone. Blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> In between, we have this life that we're trying to live, and because we're all individuals, communication is key to sharing our individual viewpoints. Mm. 
And story is valuable because it helps us to rapidly align on what we're talking about, what's important to us, what we're trying to do. Because we're all in, we all have our own viewpoints. Stories let us share those viewpoints and compare those viewpoints. And I'll be able to point to a chair and say, that's a chair. Mm-hmm. Or I'll be able to talk about a chair and have the same picture of that chair in our minds. And so communication and storytelling are absolutely vital towards alignment and pulling towards common goals mm-hmm. instead of all running, screaming in, a, in, in every direction. Uh, so I think it's all about alignment and uh, achieving collaboration. Yeah, I, I agree with those things. Uh, to me, uh, the connection piece, um, I would say, is also about relatability. Um, being able to understand and empathize with the lives and situations of others to a greater connection to a feeling of you know uh, shared humanity um, I really like I really like those aspects of communication and story as well to follow up on it just one moment I think we're all inherently selfish mm-hmm. right because we only have our own viewpoint to consider mm-hmm. and it's not a, a, a negative thing it's just a, a quality it's mm-hmm. like saying you're ignorant and that's not a negative thing that's just a fact you're you're in a state of ignorance <laughs> yeah, right until sure. you learn well by the I, i'm selfish until i learn about other selves other people mm-hmm. and once i begin to experience and understand other viewpoints i have the opportunity at least to become less selfish and so that allows you the opportunity to to become selfless so another follow-up question uh, to s- sort of what you said uh, earlier that is possibly related to this. You, you, you know, you mentioned uh, you know connection and communication. The second individual you were discussing a moment ago, you said had tuned you into a network. Uh, in this case, it was like the no- Knoxville network or the University of Tennessee network. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about the specific importance of professional networking as relates to careers? It's huge. And it's huge for, I think, two reasons. One is there, there's the aspect of specific specific opportunities, specific jobs. I've got, uh, let's say I've got a skill. I, I can draw, right? Uh, or I can do a website or I can construct music. That's all well and good. But unless I have someone to do it for uh, who who has their own plans, their own motivations, someone else needs a, 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 a jingle for a commercial. Well, unless they know about me and I know about them, we're never going to connect and I'm never going to write a jingle for them. Right. And they're never going to have a jingle written by me. Right. So that, that connection is, is crucial for making uh, a connection between the, the person who has a need and the person who can fulfill the need. Uh, and that's a very specific thing, but it extends outward. So you can, you can take that from a single, a single uh, freelance job and expand it out to, let's say, a full-time role. Uh, I have a full-time role that I need to fill and it has very complex requirements uh, I need this, that, and the other, and I have a limited number of, of uh, ways I can cast out a net. Uh, I can maybe put the job on LinkedIn. I can maybe hit up my uh, coffee clutch in the mornings. The, you know, We all go out to coffee uh, in a fictional world, and I can ask them directly. But what if I had other networks? What if I already worked at a large place of business, and I could ask everyone that I knew there to engage their own networks, right? Suddenly, my network effect is much, much larger. So every time you have the opportunity to add someone or a, a, a perspective to your network, ultimately it's a, 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 a recursive effect. And you, have, you do have to pay attention to the quality of the network. Um, you, you don't necessarily want to, let's say you reach out to a, a horrible bigot, mm, right? And yeah. suddenly you have a lot of horrible bigots in your network. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a little bit cautious about who you're adding to your network. But uh, aside from that, it, it's really kind of a win-win. As long as you have something to offer other networks and the other networks that you're adding to your own align with your goals and, and values. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about, to paraphrase, um, I'm going to say the cultivation of a professional network. Sort of weed your garden from time to time and make sure that you're growing the right sorts of plants. I, I'd also love to talk to you at a later time. For our listeners, uh, there's a fascinating branch of computer science known as network science, which is the specific study of networks of all kinds, uh, anything from biological networks like brains, uh, up to and including, and most importantly, the study of social networks. 
So what do the nodes look like? What do the connections look like? How can you mathematically analyze how communities are organized? It's really fascinating. I'd love to hear some of your particularly important job roles that you've had uh, along the way, things that taught you significant lessons. And I would love it if you could give me like an early lesson, like maybe one of your earlier jobs, and then, you know, maybe something sort of maybe what you see like mid-career and then like a later stage, like more recent. If you could mention uh, some important positions for yourself. So I'll call it an early, early, early one. And this is high school era, but I learned a lot from it. I was a warehouse manager for a local book publisher. And it was a small warehouse. I mean, it was the back room of a, you know, a small office chain. They had two floors and maybe three or four rooms total. A couple offices, the warehouse, uh, you know, a shipping center maybe. And I learned that I needed to A, be on time regularly because they needed to be able to depend on me. Mm. I learned that there was a process to follow for any given thing and that if I could learn the process, I could do the job. Because I had a lot of fear and uncertainty when I when I joined them, taking that role, thinking, well, what if I let them down? They were close family friends that were extending me the chance to, to take this role. Okay. And so I thought, well, what if I, what if I screw up, right? Well, if I follow the processes that they're teaching me, I won't screw up. And I learned that once I learned those processes and performed admirably, then I would be given more and more leeway to think about those processes and, and potentially improve them or extend them. So I learned that the more value you deliver, the more trust you engender, Ooh. the more flexibility that you are, are likely to be extended in terms of making your own decisions. So be disciplined up front, and that will allow for a little bit of flexibility and inventiveness later on. Wow, you said a lot of really important words there. I'll hold off on commenting further. Maybe you could continue. Uh, what about a, a later role that you might have had that uh, was particularly memorable for you or that taught you important lessons? So I held a senior UX designer role at Siemens Healthcare. Mm -hmm. And this was me coming into a new domain, medical imaging, and having to rapidly skill up from a, a really disparate group of professionals that were spread across the world. And so I had to learn how to engage these people at a global level, like literally at a global level, and do so across a broad spectrum of expertise, where for the most part, I had zero expertise. Mm. And so <laughs> I, I, I had to really cultivate the people skills in order to humbly approach, let's say, a clinical physicist, mm -hmm. uh, someone who deals with radiation uh, in order to work with PET scanners or spec scanners safely. And so I had to figure out the right way to interrogate them about the, the vital elements of what they did that impacted what I do. And I had to learn the right way to insert myself into rituals. And by that, I mean recurring office type rituals, product rituals. These might be stand-ups, agile stand-ups. Right, right. mm -hmm. They might be initial product or project briefs or touch points along the way. So I had to learn the types of input that were appropriate and valuable at every stage. I jumped into the job and started attending these things called Jorfix concept, not explorations, but here's a concept for a product that is quite mature at this point. We want to show it to all stakeholders now and make sure that there aren't any last minute glaring flaws in this before we ship it or before we proceed to the next stage. Maybe that's development or maybe that's QA or maybe that's shipping it. And so I had to learn the right level of input to provide to that ritual, to the Jorfix ritual, because initially I was providing input that was more appropriate to early product investigation. And so I got a lot of, oh, well, that's nice. And oh, thanks for your input. But it wasn't acted upon and it wasn't valued because it wasn't the right level of input for the ritual. And so I had to learn within the organization when to, to provide the right feedback and, in fact, identify where those gaps existed because, in many cases, there, there wasn't a good design feedback input early on in the process. And so I had to push for those after I had identified those. And so I think from that job, I really learned how to jump into a large organization, identify the right stakeholders to speak to and the right rituals and time points to insert my feedback or insert my learning points. I'd love to dive into something sort of connects the what I see the people that you mentioned earlier and the, the positions that you've had today. So you've mentioned process or, or ritual several times. So I'm curious, when you're working with others in a collaborative fashion, uh, whether you're a leader or a peer, what are some of your more effective methods to motivate or convince or lead others to change a ritual or process? Uh, particularly an entrenched one. If you can imagine a company that's very set on doing things, you know, the same way, tradition, a, a strong cultural tradition, how do you effectively lead others to, to change for the better? I think you have to do a lot of prep work. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think 
on your own or, or with team members who are also enthused or aligned with the idea of, of improving process. Mm. Maybe not that specific process, but they're on board with the idea, the mentality of process improvement. Mm. You have to gather evidence of why is this particular process broken or suboptimal mm-hmm. or at least could be improved, right? Could it be extended and enhanced? Mm-hmm. You have to kind of prove the, the case. So. Mm. What's wrong with the current state? What are the proposed future states that, that you're thinking about? And why are they better? And are they is the amount that they're better worth the cost of getting there? Uh, in other words, is there a net gain in value for your organization by making this change? So if I understood you correctly, that's those are some methods you might use for those who are open to change. Is that... Correct. Well, I was saying that I would do that by myself or with others who are open to change. Oh, or with others who are right. Open so to it, it might right. be something I'm doing my, by myself, but more than likely, any enterprise level change or even you know midsize or change that you're proposing, you're not going to be doing it in a vacuum. Right. Right. And so <laughs> it, it behooves you to have kind of kept your eyes open and identified allies is a better term, and then utilize that ally network to help you gather the intelligence necessary to prove the case of why this proposed change in process. Is valuable. Let me finish up with the final question that I have here for you related to what led you here. External forces. Can you tell me we all have things that we, we sort of choose to do. We see opportunities and we jump on them or maybe one thing leads to another or you know you have a professional network but then life throws you curveballs, right? Things, external forces can lead to change, catalysts for change. Can you tell me about maybe one or two of the more significant life events in your career trajectory, you know, evolutions or transformations or, you know, level ups that uh, might have been the result of something happening in your life? Something that immediately jumps out is geographical change. Okay. So at least pre-COVID, we were primarily defined by where we worked. Okay in terms of you know what job opportunities were available to us. And again, going back to networks, what networks we were able to avail ourselves to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And fresh out of school, I was fortunate enough to find in a local paper, that's a newspaper made of, of uh, pulped wood, uh, for those that aren't familiar. News uh, newspaper. Paper. Okay. I found a, a job ad in a newspaper and responded to it. And several days later, I had my first professional job. Oh. And there was a story there, but uh, not for now. <laughs> so I got a job with a, with a local place that uh, did software for automotive dealerships uh, that they would run in their showrooms on these unconnected computers called kiosks, computer kiosks. They had touch screens and you would interact with them on very specific, very limited, very focused paths. They would tell the story of why you should upgrade in paint protection because, or why you should invest in gap financial gap protection because, right? So it's a way to upsell someone who's just purchased a vehicle to convince them to spend more money on things that may or may not be valuable to them. Yes, (laughs) yes. But valuable for the the car dealership. Valuable for the the client, yes. Yes. So I had been there for uh, maybe about a year and learned lots of valuable skills as a multimedia developer or multimedia designer. So I was putting together visuals and animation and video and and audio, et cetera. Lots of fun stuff. And I was given the choice of, hey, we're going to shut this office down and you can move out to Virginia Beach, Virginia and join our growing company. We're growing tremendously. We're not just a little office in Oak Ridge, Tennessee anymore. Now we're going to be a big, big, big office in Virginia Beach and we're going to join this other company and they know all about this web stuff. I had a choice of staying in Knoxville and working on Oak Ridge in this little office, which they pledged to remain open. They said, if you stay here, we will leave the, the office open and we will keep the, the few employees we have here. If you want to stay, we'll do that. Or you can move out to Virginia and we'll shut this thing down. Right. And Ultimately, I opted to move, and so I moved out to Virginia Beach wow. and joined this growing company. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I stayed with them through several company transitions and growth changes. Hmm. If I had not made that decision, of course, everything would have been different. I was very fortunate, and then my girlfriend at the time tolerated this move and mm. ultimately decided to <laughs> to say yes when I proposed and joined me in Virginia. Oh yeah, Great. <laughs> yes. Uh, thus, happy life, happy wife. But going out there, it, it exposed me to a lot more tech, a lot more software than I otherwise would have been privy to. Okay. And I probably would have remained in the graphic design, visual design mindset for my entire career had I not gone out there and been exposed to this this technical capacity. I wouldn't have picked up HTML or JavaScript or any of the other web techs, and I wouldn't have thought of transitioning from the, the metaphor of a closed showroom with no connected computers to an online burgeoning World Wide Web. Right. And world wide <laughs> <web>. <laughs> so that's one, that's one example. Another is, is leaving Virginia. When I came back to Knoxville, I had to leave this big support network, this this uh, this company that I had established a lot of history with and credibility with, and, and I was the senior 
designer and I was a design manager and art director and I was leaving all that behind, would I find anything comparable in a, in a much smaller city of Knoxville? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And lo and behold, no, I didn't find anything similar. And I kind of had to reset my career to a degree, mm-hmm. you know, take a huge pay cut and responsibility cut mm-hmm. and start building a new network here. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that proved to be the right move, thankfully, uh, because those networks that I built here were stronger, more robust, and more multifaceted than the ones that I had built in Virginia. And I was able to turn that decision into exploring a number of different paths, which expanded my own domain of knowledge Hmm. into non-design management, into development, and into development management. And ultimately, turning all of that back into a much more complex blend of design in user experience. So it sounds like, in a way, your job moving or you moving back, your decisions on geographical locations or whatever, maybe the external forces gave you the opportunity to make decisions and those decisions had long-lasting effects on your life and your career. That's a good way to put it. And I could have chosen either way. And I also could have just made a choice to maybe move back to Knoxville and then sat on my laurels, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just the, the geography, but the geography is, is something that enables the adjacent possible. A lot of things would not have been possible had I not been here or not been in Virginia. That's really interesting. That reminds me of a quote that I heard a while back from somewhere. A refusal to make a choice is still a choice, right? Had you decided to stay here, things might have been probably would have been much different, or maybe not. Who knows? That's a different universe. There have been places in my life where I have resisted a change due to fear or inertia or what have you, and then eventually life came along and made those changes for me. I think it's admirable when we can step back from all of the emotional cruft of our lives and and sort of think about what we need to do and then seize those opportunities and make decisions. And it's interesting to look back now so many years later after all of this has happened and see where these decisions have led us. I think it's also helpful for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Because when you're confronted by that, as we all are, you can look back and say, well, when I was confronted with fear in the past Mm -hmm. and I chose to charge into it, Mm -hmm. how many times did it hurt me versus how many times did it help me? Right. And I can say, oh, well, with that in mind, maybe this thing that I'm really scared of doing right now, maybe I'm just going to go ahead and do it despite our FUD. (laughs) Yeah. So I wonder about that, too. And I guess in a way, this is philosophically, what's your belief in like the the goodness of the universe or like humanity? I'm the same way. I think about those times in the past where I was fearful, had fear, uncertainty, or doubt in making a certain decision. And, you know, one way or another, I chose something or something chose me. And then I have the, I have the benefit decades later of saying, you know, that was really a good thing for me. And I wonder if that is a viewpoint. Is that a conscious decision to say that things worked out for the better? Or, you know, is it also possible to live a life of regret? Do you think that's a choice? Well, I think it is. It's always a choice. I guess I tend to think that the universe rewards initiative at a, at a high level. And so I think the incumbent in any given scenario is probably going to be less statistically likely to benefit as much long term as the change. Mm-hmm. As the one who makes the change is probably likely to benefit more often than not. Now, that's maybe that's just rolling the dice. And for me, it turned out. I'd love to dive into Purely this subjective, obviously. But I, I've seen that reward, you know, in, in my own career. And I've seen that in people that have I've had this conversation with mm-hmm. as they're on the cusp of a decision. Oh, yeah. And way more often than not, if they've made the choice to make a change, Mm -hmm. it has panned out well for them in the end. But we can never prove it because we can never look at the other fork in the path. We can never say, well, what would have happened, right? So we're always subjective when we're having this discussion. Yeah, I'd love to hear the thoughts of others on this too. I'm sure there are many, many writings uh, and people who have shared their experiences and stories. And there probably are some statistical things out there that would prove one way or the other, but I am not a statistician switch gears a little bit and sort of more directly talk about values and goals. We've been dancing around these subjects for a while. Of course, you know, in real life, we may not often examine our values and goals, but for the two of us, I know that that is not the case. I'd love to talk to you now about your values, not only today, but considering their evolution over time. And then as a bonus, we can go back and look at some materials from 2013 and see how your concept of values and goals has changed. I'd like to say that my values as far as I labeled them in my head, haven't changed that much. But we'll see what I was thinking in 2013. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let me ask you about that. Just uh, straight up. Do you write down your, your values? Do you consciously sit and meditate and enumerate and express your specific values? Do you rank them? I have not done much formalized thinking about my values until I began this podcast. Mm. And I will say that exposure to other people's thinking on their values and goals has certainly made me codify my own a little bit more. I have not gone to the extent of writing them down and fully exploring where I am with them right now. I have written them down. 
but what I've realized is while the labels probably haven't changed much through my life, mm. what each label means to me has changed and will continue to change throughout my life. And I'll dive into that when I actually list the values here in a moment. Okay, uh, could you articulate your values for us, Rich? <laughs> my values are family, industry, and fun. Family, industry, and fun. Wow, okay. So tell me more about family, industry, and fun. So family is a generic label and it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. For me, it means those people that are vital and important and crucial to my sense of self and well-being and place in the universe. And family is not confined to people whose blood I share. It is inclusive of people who have joined my family or that I have sucked into my family, that, uh, you know, screaming perhaps, uh, <laughs> you know, close friends, family through marriage, uh, family through a friend of a friend. So my wife, for example, has a, a friend, she's a local doctor and has been in my orbit for a long time because of my wife. She is family. I mean, she's not part of my blood and she's not directly my friend. In other words, I wasn't the origin of, of our friendship. She has become my friend and has become family to me through our various orbits. So, you know, I would do anything for her and I'm sure she would do anything for us. There's an implicit trust there that goes both ways. So I think that's part of my definition of family is trust. I, I think of it as the, the kid test. Would I leave my kid with you? Uh, <laughs> right? Ooh, would, short would, list, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the second value there of industry might raise some eyebrows just because it seems like kind of a, a generic term, but industry to me means making use of what we have to ensure the safety and prosperity of family. Can you repeat that? So making use of what I have, mm -hmm. in other words, my skills, mm -hmm. my possessions, my abilities, my networks, mm -hmm. what do I have to offer the world, the universe, making use of that to ensure the safety and prosperity of family. Hmm. Uh, I meant to mention that I include myself in family. It's, it's sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm part of this family network because I have a lot of self negative self-talk and, and imposter syndrome, et cetera. But I have to pat myself on the, on the shoulder, like you mentioned, and say, you're doing okay. Or you didn't, you, you know, you know more than you knew, you knew then. Yes. Industry is also making use of what I have to ensure my own safety and my own prosperity. But it's the network effect of, of the entire family unit. What do I have? What skills do I have? Things do I own? I'm, I've got a drone. What can I do? with my drone to make my family happier and safer and, and more prosperous. So I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into industry before we move on to f Industry to me has a connotation of, I don't know what you'd call it, creativity, productivity, you know, instantiation, taking an idea or a thought or a skill or whatever and directing it into the real world to make things. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. To, to paraphrase one of your earlier statements, you, you mentioned something about value delivery. Are those aspects to you of industry? Is it is it necessarily productivity or um, you know uh, value delivery? Is that is that part of industry? I think it definitely is, but I think that, that what you define as value delivery can be very widespread. Sure. So am I delivering value by sharing time with a nephew and showing him how to fly a drone, exposing him to kindness and to new new things, and just sharing time with him? Yes, I think I'm adding value to the world. I'm adding value to our relationship. I'm learning from him. I'm engaging with a young person viewpoint that I don't have anymore myself, so I'm getting value. You could say it's an exchange of value, but I'm using my time, I'm using my gifts to produce something in the world, whether that's a, a, a better relationship, a wider grasp of the world uh, from my perspective or someone else's. But yeah, it's also about creating content, whether that's music or art or the written word, or maybe it's connecting two dots in a network, you know, sure. putting mm -hmm. you, Shane, together with you, oh, yeah. Bob, mm -hmm. and then your union of viewpoints and skills itself creates something marvelous in the world. Sure. So I have created a connection at that point. Mm -hmm. I've added value in that way. Mm -hmm. And if I'm sitting there binging on Netflix, for example, mm -hmm. or lying in my bed with my eyes shut under the covers crying because the world is hard, I'm not adding value to the world. I'm not uh, increasing my own understanding of the world. I'm not you know, adding value to anyone else's world. I'm not creating any, any interesting content. So I'm essentially wasting my potential. I'm wasting my industry if I don't utilize that industry. So would you say that others are a necessary component of industry? If you created art only for yourself and hung it on your walls for your personal enjoyment, would that still be industry or would it not be because it doesn't involve others? I think it would still be industry, but it would be a very, very limited scope. Okay. I would only be impacting myself. So I would say that would be a somewhat selfish expression of industry. What about fun? What can you say about fun? So I guess I define fun in this way. We, we are here on this earth to have experiences 
that mold us into better beings. That's kind of my top-level worldview. Why mm. are we here? I think we're here to, to have experiences that turn us into better people, better souls, better energy patterns, whatever you believe. And I think a key part of that is realizing that at least as far as we know, we have a single rotation to do so. Ho hopefully we have any number of them. But <laughs> while we're here, why not make that gathering of experiences? Why not make that expression of our gifts? Why not make it fun? Why not make it positive? Mm. We have a choice to go through life angry or sad mm. or uncontent or happy. And granted, we, we have limitations on our conditions. It's going to be very, very difficult for someone stuck in poverty who's always super, super, super hungry, right? They're, they're just starving. It, it's not really up to them to make a choice to be happy. Uh, so there are obviously there's going to be variants in how this is expressed in the world. But if you're, if you're privileged enough to be able to exercise control over your world, you have a choice to be happy, to engage in things that are fun, to help others engage in things that are fun, to help others be happy and content and safe and prosperous. And I think thinking in terms of a mindset of it's kind of on us to improve how we all feel, to improve you know where we are in life. So I, I think doing that by thinking about well, how can we make this fun? I have to do this work. Well, how can I whistle while I work? How can I put a smile on my face or, or the, the face of my coworkers while they do while we scrub the the tables in the restaurant? Right. If you have a choice, make a choice towards fun. Make a choice towards making other people happy. So I am reminded uh, for your your our dear listeners, I am reminded of a class that I have recently been studying. I believe it's out of Yale. It's a scientific study of happiness. Are you familiar with, with this class you can take? It's a free online. I don't think so. Yeah, Dan Gilbert's one of the guys that's pretty influential in the, the science of happiness. The link that I'm thinking about, the, the woman that I'm thinking about is Dr. Laurie Santos. And she has a class on Coursera called The Science of Well-Being. Uh, and it is a scientifically validated algorithmic approach to increasing one's happiness in life. And I think a lot of the content ties sort of directly to some of the themes that you were just alluding to about power of positivity and reflection and um, uh, affecting conscious change. That's really interesting. Another thing that struck me when I was hearing you describe family and industry and fun, uh, and I think I had referenced this on our, our previous chat when our uh, seats were reversed, as it were, I have struggled a lot with the specificity of naming things. Early on, a decade ago, my goal then was to specifically articulate three to five of my my like my most important goals and choose only one word to represent those. And that has been the work so far of a decade in self-reflection and uh, refinement and getting the right balance between specificity and generality that sufficiently encompasses the ideals that I'm trying to articulate, but also is not so narrow as to completely uh, disregard important themes. So it's interesting. I think you and I share a lot of those. Family I struggled with, I sort of renamed that connection in myself in a similar way to more broadly encompass the greater than my biological family or my friends, uh, just sort of a value for connecting with others and sharing our stories and experiences and gaining and, you know, empathy and trust and respect and relation to others. Uh, that one was really important to me. And then fun, your description of fun to me sounds a lot like my own of, of growth, uh, to value the conscious improvement of my own life and others to cultivate the different dimensions of your life to grow the things that you love the most. Industry is one that I've always struggled with. I feel like I should have that in my list of goals, uh, but for me, it seems more aspirational than practical because when I take an honest look at my life and how I spend my time, often generating business value has not been one of my focuses. So I struggle with that sometimes in that, you know, I, I like to believe that that's important for me, industry. I think business is, a, is an unnecessary qualifier. Mm. I don't think that the value that you generate has to be business value. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. like I said, I think the value of putting two people together, uh, sure, the value sure. of spending time with an individual, mm -hmm. there's still value there. Is it business value? No. I mean, mm -hmm. is it titans of industry? industry? No. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. I'd love to go back in time uh, to revisit some of the things that you had previously stated were your values. Now, these were sort of maybe less specifically discussed back then, but I have... And to clarify, this is 2013 Rich. Correct. 2013 Rich. So I have here fitness, the outdoors, family, self-expression. So some of those I see a direct overlap. Are there any of those that maybe you would put to the side today? I would say that fitness is something that I wouldn't put to the side, but that I have put to the side. Unintentionally, but 
at the same time, semi-consciously. We all have a choice whether or not we're going to get up and go for a 30-minute jog, right? It's, it's up to us. We don't often think about that choice, but it is a choice because we could have scheduled it. We could have set up reminders. We could have consciously made time and made it happen. So indirectly, I have made a choice not to devote as much time to fitness over the pandemic as I could have. Mm-hmm. I mean, every day I have a choice. Well, is today going to be the day that I start a new workout program? Uh, I've got a number of them in my pocket that I could pull out and, and execute. I've got a, a little home gym here. So I have really no excuses other than my own choices. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I have probably deprioritized fitness more than I should have. And that it indeed has an impact on my daily life because I'm not as healthy. I don't have as much energy. I don't have the, the warm afterglow of hormones that happens when you've had a great workout, right? And, mm-hmm. and those impact your mental state. It's definitely something that I need to refocus on and is something that is in the foremost in my mind amongst things that are on my to-do list. What about the outdoors? The outdoors is something that I think I'm a little codependent on and that I would prefer... <laughs> Codependent. Codependent outdoorsman. (laughs) I do enjoy going into the outdoors by myself Mm -hmm. and uh, doing that, but I actually enjoy it more with someone or other people. In other words, I would far rather go uh, on an overnight hike or go on a canoe trip with somebody else than by myself. While there's value in introspection and quiet time and solitude, I think I get enough of that. Now that I'm working by myself in in, in my office here at home, I get enough solitude already. And so I want something else. I want something that is more collaborative. I want fellowship. I want connection. So when I, I think I would prefer to indulge in the outdoors with other people. And when I say to myself, ah, oh, well, you can't get such and such to go camping or it's going to be a pain to schedule these folks together. Mm-hmm. They're excuses, but they're also legitimate reasons to not go outdoors this very moment. Mm-hmm. And by outdoors, I don't mean stepping outdoors, listeners. I, we're, we're talking about like getting out to the mountains or going out to the lake or, you know, planning a trip into the deep back country, etc. So thanks a lot for uh, your, your discussion of the values. I think that's been very revealing. I'd love to jump into some more meaning questions. Um, I believe the, the stated intent of your show, as I have it, is what do our guests do for a living? Uh, what were their roads to those roles? And how do they align with their values and goals? I'm really curious about the nature of a career. The way I understand it, and even you know some of my anecdotal experience, it used to be the thing where people had a career, where you would go to the factory and you would clock in and you would have a job and you would do this thing for some period of time, decades perhaps, you would spend 30 years at the company, you would get a watch, and then you know you would retire and, and you know do whatever else. My ideal, my expectation for the modern world is that that is no longer the majority of the case, is that people often shift roles or shift positions or shift gears or sometimes even completely change the domain of their, their specialty, right? Like I think you said you started out in design and then you maybe moved to development. Recently you've been in a more managerial role and that perhaps you wanted to get back to doing some of the design. I don't know if I captured that correctly, but what does career mean to you? I think vocation or or career Mm -hmm. as a whole, career is really your story, your story of work. Okay. What have you done over your life in terms of paying the bills, in terms of putting a roof over your head, making money? How have you made money over the years? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, going back to the gold watch, it's easiest to tell that story by not making any changes, right? Okay. So yeah. if, you, if you tell a story and it's a short story, you've got three sentences on the page, well, then it's easy and you're done. But if you're a storyteller <laughs> or, or you're interested in having an interesting career or a rewarding career and doing the same thing isn't rewarding for you, mm-hmm. and I think that's key. Uh, for some people, <clears throat> doing the same thing may actually be intensely rewarding mm-hmm. because they get to do the same thing and they get to maybe dive deeper and deeper and deeper into that, into that niche. Mm-hmm. But for me, I get bored doing the same thing too often. And, oh, yeah. And so for me, my career has been about finding opportunities that both leverage my existing store of knowledge and experiences, but also presents an opportunity for growth and excitement and fun. And so if I don't find both of those things in a career opportunity, mm-hmm. then it's a, a red flag and it's, you know, don't go here. Okay. There, there be dragons. So <laughs> if I take a role where those things aren't true, mm-hmm. then it will ultimately prove to be a negative experience. The career is is one's story of work. It's complex to tell that story if you make jumps from domain to domain or job type to job type. And it may be difficult for you to to tell that story, to, to vocalize what that story is okay. in the present. But when you look back on a career, mm. oftentimes it's easier to tell that story because you understand more of the nuance of maybe the things, the factors that you weren't able to speak out loud, but they were in play. A great example of that for me is I took a job as an ad operations manager at Scripps Network. And this is coming out of a, here, uh, a career of design. And I took this job and 
at the time I took it because I wanted to join a really great company. I wanted to get into Scripps Networks and none of the design jobs were available. I had been a, a freelancer for a year at Scripps doing design work and nothing had come up. You know, no no good j design jobs had surfaced. And so at that point, I'm like, well, I just want to get in. I'll get, get my toe in there, right? I'm going to take this job as an ad ops manager. Mm -hmm. So I came on, I learned a lot of really interesting things about how enterprise companies make money if they're an ad-based company. Mm -hmm. How do they make money? What are the mechanisms in play? Mm -hmm. Who are the players? What are the teams? You know, what, what, what are the processes? And at the time, I thought, well, this is fine. In the, the several years following that job, I thought maybe I had made a mistake. I thought maybe I had derailed my career because now I've stopped my progression on the design track and I've jumped over to this random business thing. And is this what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Am I going to be doing ad stuff for the rest of my life? I don't particularly like ads. I mean, I went to school for advertising design as a minor, but ads actually annoy the heck out of me. I mute ads on TV. I, I turn the, the radio station if I'm listening to the R-A-D-I-O for those of you in the audience. <laughs> yeah. um, if I'm listening to the radio and an it's ad like comes on. It's like a podcast, on, right? It's, like, it's, like, it's kind of like a podcast. Okay. okay. Uh, but I change the channel. I don't like you know being subjected to advertising, but yet here I am you know, being in a career that's, that's <laughs> offering advertising to the eyeballs of others. But on reflection, I realized that understanding how those systems interacted and gaining in, in my expertise of systems level thinking, not to mention understanding how monetization occurs mm. at the enterprise level in those types of organizations, mm -hmm. was actually incredibly valuable. It was also my second stint as a manager of people and I will say it's kind of like cold porridge, warm porridge, hot porridge. You want hot porridge, but ultimately you have to get there. And my first role as a manager, I, I was a, made a manager of designers because I was the senior most designer. I was a horrible manager. I knew nothing about leading people. Yeah. I made all the mistakes in the book. How did you learn to lead people? Uh, just by doing? By yeah. making all the mistakes in the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and be, being open to feedback. My second management was leading that ad operations team. And I, I learned a lot from the people on my team about things that I was doing well and things that I was doing poorly. And I, I took a, a 360 evaluation during that phase of my career. And there was a lot of sobering input that I got from my reports, from my managers, from my peers, et cetera. And that happened about the same time as the birth of my first child. And that was a, a period of a lot of mental growth for me. Oh, yeah. A lot of mental pain, but a lot of mental growth. Oh, yeah, growth. yeah. <laughs> they, um, you know, I, I kind of believe, let me see if you, you do too. Do you think that pain and growth go hand in hand? I think they do. There's a reason they call it growing pains. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your change can be painful. And if you're changing, then there's a, a possibility that you're growing. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I, we've said earlier, we, we both believe that changing statistically probably leans towards the positive in terms of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that period of time was very growth oriented for me, as well as being very painful, and it's not a coincidence. It seems risky uh, in, in in a lot of ways. Uh, change. Oh, absolutely. It is, it is painful, and there is the potential to fall, and there's fear, but it does so often lead to growth. I think that's the reward. The the last management role that I had was was managing a front end development team there at the same place, and I think I was most successful at being a leader on that team. Well, at the same time, I probably had the least grasp on the individual contributor aspect of the role. Uh, because it was a, a front-end development team, and I had not done front-end development for four or five years, so I, I was out of practice. I wasn't up on the trends, and there's, I mean, the front-end development world is incredibly fast in terms of how it changes. You can literally be out of date in two weeks uh, because new releases have happened, new libraries have emerged, new techniques have emerged, browsers have changed, whatever. But I had a, a, a graceful team that acknowledged or accepted my my acknowledgement of that ignorance that I was bringing to the table, and they appreciated what I was able to bring to the table, which was mentoring them from a, a career perspective and organizing the unified front and how we presented ourselves to the, the wider organization, to the product team, to the ad operations team, to the sales team, et cetera, mm -hmm. such that our group of developers was better equipped to do their job because I was there, mm -hmm. uh, because I established communication channels or I established process or I hired new people onto the team or I moved people onto other teams. In other words, my, my, my management, my leadership let us emerge as an organization, as a team, better than when I'd started. And so that's, that's why I say I think that was my best stint as a manager because I was able to do those things. Let me take a slightly different tack here. Self-awareness, right, is is maybe important to be able to look at yourself, take a step back and maybe out of your life and sort of realize, you know, patterns of thought or behavior that you exhibit. Part of that maybe is recognizing the feelings that you're having. Could you describe for me maybe what it feels like to you? How do you know when it's time to move on from a career? It's funny because for a while I prided myself on being able to at least seemingly sense when it was time to jump. And that happened, I think, maybe three times in a row where it just so happened I made the right choice. And in retrospect, I think I maybe just got lucky. So mm -hmm. it's it's not that I know how or when to jump, <laughs> okay. but I think maybe I've become more aware of signals okay. that it's time to consider moving on. 
not that it's time to move on, but it's time to make that consideration, right? To do the to do an evaluation okay. on whether it's time to move on. So it's a perception of something that's happening. You perceive things to be indicative of a time to move on. Or, or indicative of time to, to make that analysis. Okay. You know, instead of just status quo, blindly moving on or, or happily whistling and doing your work all the time, mm-hmm. maybe it's time to, to sit back and, and do a conscious analysis of whether it's time to move on. What might a couple of those be? Boredom. Would Boredom, be a big okay, one. yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think if you're not actively engaged in, in doing your work every day and you start getting boredom signals, if otherwise you're happily engaged and, mm-hmm. and everything is hunky-dory uh, and you're just getting bored, well, that's a good signal that it's time to, to reach out to your peers to your management, to your reports, whatever that is, and see about other ways to engage yourself, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm bored, I need to become engaged. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's because I need to do some mentorship, or maybe Mm -hmm. it's because I need to do some training. Mm -hmm. Maybe I need to change roles within my organization. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just need to take on new duties. Maybe I need to figure out why I'm bored. And if it's not because of any of those things, uh, because I'm getting repeated boredom signals over time, maybe it's because I've outgrown the role, or maybe the role has changed so significantly from what I signed on to do. In other words, I agreed to do X, now I'm doing Y. Mm-hmm. Or I agreed to come on and build and lead a team, but now I'm the sole practitioner and it looks like I'm going to be that way for the you know foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Why are you bored? It would be a, a great question to ask. Okay. Another would be systems level change in the organization. Mm-hmm. So we all know uh, what a reorg is like, right? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote an article on, on this, I think it was 2014, 2015, about, about the UX of organizational change. Oh yeah, okay. How, how an organization can think about their customers, their users, i.e. their employees, their employees experience during that type of, of massive transition. And I think that organizational change is usually a good time to consider whether or not it's time to move on because maybe you're not going to be doing what you're going to be what you're doing now maybe you'll have to do something different you know maybe you've been uh, a dishwasher and now you're going to be mopping floors right organizational change is a good time to make that consideration yeah sure Mm -hmm. and it it can be a time of tremendous growth for you uh, as well it's not it's not always gloom and doom yep but it's a it's a it's a change right another would be acquisition yeah oh yeah so and that is another kind of word change but it's it's an externally driven org change. Mm-hmm. So your company is being bought by another company. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your future and your place in the company? Mm-hmm. And another would be personnel changes. Personnel, like turnover? Or? Well, like, let's say that you're part of a small team and suddenly they bring on somebody and they change the team dynamic to a large extent. And no longer are you the same team. You're not the same organization. You're not the same group of people pulling towards common goals. You're now a different group of people pulling towards common goals. Okay. So that changes your work life, your work environment. And, and it may not be something that's suitable for you anymore. It's not necessarily that person's fault that came on board. Maybe it's the manager's fault or maybe there's no fault at all. It's just now it's a different animal and you're not fulfilled by that anymore. So you want to make a change. You leave, or maybe you ask to do something different on a team, and that rebalances your experience with the day-to-day of that of that role, of that team, of that org. Mm-hmm. But so personnel change can be it. A lot of people say people don't leave a job because of the job, they leave it because of their manager. Yeah. Uh, and then that's a, that's a reflection of, of that philosophy, is that personnel has changed. Maybe that manager had a life event, and suddenly they're a different person, right? They're not the same person they used to be. Uh, maybe they got a divorce, and now they have kids. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't have the same energy to bring to work. They don't have the same inputs and outputs. Maybe they don't have the time to give you that they used to, and that was why you were still happy in the role, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe now they're paying too much attention to you, and now you're not happy in the role. Yeah. But personnel changes can be another thing. We're approaching the end of our time here, so I have sort of one more question for you in this area, Rich. Uh, the, this, I know you're a man of, of many, many hobbies, much like myself. What do you think is the relationship between... Uh, so I guess, first of all, are those two different things, vocation and avocation? And then in your own life, how closely are they linked? Do you do things uh, in your work life and personal life that are very similar? Or do you maybe, do you take a different tack, recharge or rejuvenate, you know, your brain? It's probably different for everyone. But for myself, I've found that I'm happier if I don't try to combine the two directly. In other words, if I am an illustrator in my day-to-day life, I'm not going to go and then illustrate things as a hobby. But I think that it's, for me, it's nigh impossible to completely separate them. Mm-hmm. So for example, here I am doing a podcast on job-related things. Uh, yeah. And... <laughs> Out of the blue, out of the ether, the the new job that emerged, lo and behold, is a company that's focused on talent optimization, on understanding how people are wired to work. And so I think that there is a connection for me. I bring design skills and collaboration skills and communication skills into this particular role that I have picked up across, of course, my career, but also as I've pursued my hobby. So hobbies would be, for example, just being outdoors, going hiking and camping, et cetera, flying a drone. 
Well, flying a drone was something I did avocationally mm-hmm. at first, and then I began to pursue it vocationally as a side job, which has had the net effect of increasing my skills as a pilot, which also then applies avocationally to my skills as a pilot for fun. In learning to fly a drone, uh, and then in making that side business, did that change your uh, enjoyment for the better or worse or otherwise in flying in general? It didn't change my enjoyment. It probably, well, it definitely shifted the percentage of my drone flying time mm-hmm. to almost entirely vocational. Mm-hmm. But I have also learned to cultivate the appreciation of all the time that I'm flying mm-hmm. to also make it fun and to make it. So after I get the establishing shots, the necessary shots for a job, well, then I fly my drone around until the battery's done, getting fun shots, composing interesting imagery, finding unique vantage points. So I've found a way to combine avocation and vocation within the scope of the time I'm able and willing to spend on that vocation. And I think to the same extent, anything where there was an overlap, I would try to pursue that dual track. So I think that's a great segue into what I see as the last segment for our discussion today, which is about getting things done. How do you get all of this done? How do you balance your work and your family and your hobbies and your health? And what are the tips or tricks or you know rituals that you have, habits or practices that you feel um, are valuable to your success, both at work and at home? First, I'll, I'll admit that I've dreaded getting this question. Mm, yeah. That's why <laughs> I, I would, saved it for last. Every time I ask this question, I felt a little bit of an uh, uh, imposter syndrome because I really don't have a great system. I kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Mm-hmm. Similar to, to my uh, my budgeting skills, which have always evolved to making more than I spend. <laughs> which is a, yeah, that's well, a good goal, yeah. That's, well, no, that's the plan. That's the budget. <laughs> spend less than I Maybe make. Maybe not as great, but... <laughs> yeah. By the same token, I'm mostly informal about my processes for, for getting things done. Mm. I will say that since the dawn of Google Suite, for example, mm-hmm. it is much easier for me because I can integrate my, my online correspondence, i.e. email, mm-hmm. with calendaring and mm-hmm. with setting tasks mm-hmm. and setting reminders and things. Okay. So I am constantly flinging momentary thoughts into the ether, knowing that I don't have to rely on my short-term meet memory to mm. retain it. So constantly, hey, Google, do this. Hey, Google, do that. Mm. Uh, so remind me to do this. And, and I recently switched over to iOS again for the first time in a while. So now I have Siri on my side as well. So yeah, I set any time that, that I have an obligation that is a line in time, I set something in those systems to remind me to do that. Sure. I have systems for catching random thoughts, basically just, hey, remember that short story idea? I jotted onto a little note that I collect short story ideas on, etc. Etc. Remind me to do this, do this, etc. I have an electronic brain. Is, is essentially oh, yeah. what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't rely on knowledge in my head. I put that knowledge into the world, sure. so that not only it's out there, but that the act of reacquiring it reinforces those, those cells in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we remember something, when we learn something, it's imprinted into our brain in a very specific and, and physical way. And the more times you return to that thing, the more layers in effect. The more places in your mind or the deeper the impression of that thing in your mind is. Mm-hmm. And so by putting things into the electronic systems of the world, I'm reinforcing my meat memory of them as well as reducing my worry and anxiety about remembering them. Mm-hmm. And I am not a great rememberer of things. And oh. so I, I am a great generator of thoughts. I'm not a great organizer and keeper of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so those systems help me to function as a competent adult. I, I find that aside from all that digital trickery, what, trickery. Makes, <laughs> what makes me the mo- or what has the most impact on me is writing things down physically. So okay. in okay. a journal, on mm-hmm. a list, mm-hmm. on a sticky, mm-hmm. anything that I do that, it actually, I think, has more weight in terms of pattern making mm-hmm. and, and foremost, you know, being foremost in my thoughts. I'll, I'll be more likely to remember something or return to it and chuckle and learn from it like you did your the 2013 interview that we oh, had. Yeah. You wrote that stuff down. And mm-hmm. as a result, we both have a more conscious remembering of that period of time in our life, which mm-hmm. probably triggers a lot of other memories that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to surface. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And so I think writing and journaling is one of my success buckets in that the more I do it, the more successful I will be in my life. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's one of the things that I, I like fitness. It is on my top rich needs to, to get better at list, mm-hmm. getting back into workouts and getting better at journaling. Uh, two things. One is there is a study that I have recently, a branch of study that I have recently come across is personal knowledge management or personal information management. It's a thing. There are tons of nerds on the internet that will talk to you for an hour and a half on YouTube about how they manage all their stuff. One tool in particular that I've come across recently, so I love to journal and have for decades, uh, and I love to have all my stuff written down, but I also like to connect it. 
So there's this really great tool that I've run across recently called Obsidian, and this is not a paid pitch, just a product that I've come across that I love, obsidian.md, I believe is the website. It is a markdown-based archival system which uses hyperlinks as first-class citizens. It sort of extends the idea of tags, although you can tag your entries, but you can also put in direct web links both to internal resources, other notes or documents that you have, or external ones. And one of the cool things it allows you to do is to create knowledge maps, which will show you a physical graph of all the ideas and concepts and how they're related for you. So you can tie together personal journals, you can tie together meeting notes, book reviews, ideas that you've had, I, you summarize papers. It's a really great tool. And there's tons of resources on the internet out there for people who use it and their workflows. And then the second thing, when you were talking about memory, I'm gonna pitch her book again. Uh, I might have mentioned it the last time, Barbara Okia, Dr. Barbara Okia, I believe is her name. She wrote a really great book called Learning How to Learn. From that, you know, there were some MOOCs and some classes that were created, but it's a really great way of reinforcing those mental pathways for things that are important. And she talks a lot about the impute and the importance of focused versus diffuse knowledge, which is directly relevant to our talk today because for me, my model is focused is sort of vocational or like technical scientific versus avocational, which is more um, hobbies or things which are unrelated that let your brain sort of relax. I think we're about out of time for our conversation today. wanted to express again my gratitude for the opportunity to come here and hear from you some of the things that you had asked me and revisit some of those paths and connections that we have had in the past, sort of seeing how we've evolved in this time. Thanks for being my host in this episode and being first guest on the podcast. And, and thanks for just being a good friend. We certainly shared a lot of conversations in the past, and you have consistently challenged my thinking, challenged my statements, latched on to certain things I've said and dug deeper, not only today in the podcast, but just in, in any conversation we have. You're a, a really good listener, and you're able to relate what you hear to things that I need to pay attention to. So thank you. Thanks to you as well, Rich. I had a great time today. Thanks to my guests for listening, and until next time, stay focused on your why.